You're listening to Hey everyone, welcome to a very special episode of the Collabcast. This is another special collaboration presents episode, um, bringing you um, the sights and sounds of Comic Con 2017. My name is Mervyn Yue, and um, joining me to anchor this uh, special episode is Manpreet Carr. Hello, everyone. How's it going? Manpreet was with me at Comic Con this year uh, as we went around all like five days. I was there for five days. You were there for just four, right? Yeah, I was there for four days. And uh, Marvin, man, sights and sounds, but you missed the smells of Comic-Con, <laughs> which we won't get too much into. On this episode, we'll be featuring interviews from Asian American artists at the Comic-Con Artists Alley, um, in-depth interviews with Dark Horse artist Ron Chan, the illustrator behind the comic book adaptation of Plants vs. Zombies, and Comic-Con luminary Stan Sakai, um, the artist and writer behind Usagi Yojimbo, who's been in print since 1984. Also, we're going to take a look at merch at Comic-Con by talking to Eric Nakamura of Giant Robot and Ted Fu of Awkward Animals, as well as uh, one of our friends who's very proficient in the art of collecting and um, buying stuff at Comic-Con, um, Jeff Chen, who is our former Collaboration Houston director. Um, but before we get to that, I just wanted to um, have a big overview of what we saw at Comic-Con. Um, Marit, how many years have you been going? Oh, man. I've been going to Comic-Con in San Diego for, I think this is my fifth year. Oh. Yeah, I usually volunteer, and so going this year as press was very different, I think. What were some of the standout things that you saw um, this year? I think, all right, let's just, if we're really going to start big picture, the the most standout things was literally the number of people that were there this year. I think I saw an article later, and it was like over 275,000 people rolled through this Comic-Con. Um, I don't know how accurate it was, like who's actually counting, but... Really, it was insane. I mean, they scan you every time you go in, so I assume that's how they keep track. Yeah, <laughs> but it wh- did feel like, especially on Saturday, Friday and Saturday, it felt like there was a ton of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's always cool going to Comic-Con because of all the cosplay that you see. And really, when we're talking about representation of Asian Americans, there's mm-hmm. a lot of us at Comic-Con. So it's super cool. Usually just like meeting up. There's a bunch of meetups. Um, there's a bunch of smaller panels that you can get into without too much hassle. Uh, and really, we got to sit down at a lot of those. So I think for me this year, that was kind of the standout, really. Yeah, this was my first time covering Comic-Con as a member of the press. Um, I was able to get invited to a couple of really cool press events, though, um, including a DC um, press breakfast um, where we were able to take a look at some upcoming projects. And also I got to meet Jim Lee, who is like the godfather of uh, comic books. Yeah, um, you should talk about that, actually. <laughs> formerly cause... of Marvel. And now now he's like a bigwig over at DC. Yeah. I'm um, doing like Superman and Batman and all that. Um, but um, something really cool that we saw was a, a preview of their new um, Batman series, which yeah. is um, Batman Metal. Um, written by Scott Snyder. Um, basically, it's a not an alternate history of Batman, but I guess um, you know how DC they they love their multiverses, like their different um, versions of Earth. And this is um, they introduced a thing called the Dark Multiverse, where versions of Batman who like Batman always skirts the line between light and dark. Right? He's like he's good, but he also like bends the rules and it's kind of um, he doesn't kill, but he also like 
hurts people. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so this is introduces a bunch of versions of Batman who went wrong at some point. So mm-hmm. introduced to like uh, a Batman who, uh, after Doomsday killed Superman, experimented with Doomsday's DNA and became like a big monster Batman. You have a Batman who uh, experimented with the Speed Force, became like a, some sort of Flash Batman, and um, they're all led by this. The head Dark Batman is the Batman who laughs. So. They didn't share his um his design, but you can kind of imagine what what that is. But yeah, that, it's always cool to see people. I wouldn't even say it's fresh, you know, like evil evil X, like evil fill in the blank has always been a, a common trope, you know, like, at a mustache and then they're evil now, right? <laughs> but it's an interesting place to take Batman. Maybe not fresh, but refreshing. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, but one of the things that I was actually most more excited about from that press dinner was the announcement of, I guess, a follow-up to The American Way, uh, written by John Ridley, who was the screenwriter behind American Crime and 12 Years a Slave. Um, I guess he's um, he originally wrote this. Basically, it's like, what if superheroes existed during the civil rights era? So you had superheroes who were actively involved in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And this is the follow-up taking place in 1972 um, with the surviving superheroes and dealing with the pretty much the fallout of the civil rights era. And like, it looks super interesting. Looks, it seems like it's a very necessary um, yeah, dialogue, to have in, in, especially in these, the current days. Um, and part of the storyline is they have this character. Basically, it's an embodiment of like a Southern white ally during the civil rights movement who becomes disenfranchised in the post-civil rights era mm-hmm. and what happens there. Wow. So I'm um, super excited about those things. Um, check out, um, I think that's coming out through Vertigo, which is DC's like more um, gritty or more adult label. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are some cool things to check out. Uh, we'll have links in the show notes if you guys are interested in checking that out. I think while I was at the press breakfast, you were walking the floor. So what were some cool things that you saw? Man. First of all, explain the floor. Explain yeah. the Comic-Con floor for our I, audience. I was just going to say, I feel like there's definitely some ex- explanation needed for, for people who are fresh to <laughs> the con experience. If if you are able to get your hands on a ticket, by the way, you can volunteer. So um, you should look into that if you want to. But anyway, if you are able to get your hands on tickets and you've never been to a con before, so just a big bird's eye view of what the con looks like. It's a huge convention center. It's actually on the bay in San Diego, like in the heart of downtown. So if you've heard of Gaslamp District, it's like right across the street. And then on the opposite side or the back side of the con, there's like this bay area of just water, <laughs> um, which lends itself to be pretty dope because you have all of these boats lined up and a lot of like panels and things happen on those boats as well. Um, not this year, but in previous previous years, I was definitely able to check out nice. like panels on those, and they're really fun. So like <laughs> live readings of like your favorite like animated shows happen on those boats, and so you can check those tickets out too. But the con floor itself is a huge um, space, and it doesn't look huge because you enter and every inch of it is packed with booths. There's like thousands of them. People from all over the world fly in and have like their booth set up there. Um, one of my favorite, like, artists from Brazil was trying to get this booth at the con this year. And, like, there's this extensive process that you have to go through for, like, signing up for one. And it's like a lottery. So everyone there is pretty excited that they're able to be there, um, <laughs> including, like, attendees. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just artists. There's also um, people there selling 
vintage comic books, collectible toys. Um, there's a video game section at the end where they were playing. You know, they had people. They had like they had like a Blizzard booth. People were playing. Uh, was it Marvel versus Capcom? Was it Four or Infinite? Infinite. Infinite. It's the new one. Yes. And it was. And also, as Comic Con is known for now, lots of. Um, activations from big brands you know, you got- oh my god yeah there was like the netflix experience where mm-hmm. they um they had converted it into like a stranger things type of like promo yeah. situation and then there's like the walking dead section and within the con floor itself so it's not just booths that's a great point there's booths that sell like comics and all those things and there's also like booths from your major tv networks so there's like warner brothers <laughs> and there's like um you know people uh, they're doing signings yeah. i think the cast of walking dead walked by and we were just stuck yeah for like an hour oh my god um. And, and, and then, you know, you have all these people, uh, do the, doing their like autograph sessions. And so if you can imagine like the entire cast of like a Marvel film comes down, like descends upon we the We just floor. missed Thor Ragnarok the, on Saturday. Oh. Like we were there right after they were on the stage. Dang it. It was Chris Hensworth, Mark Ruffalo, Taika Waititi. I'm crying little tears. Yeah, but the um, thing is, like, so many of those things happen where you're like, oh, man, oh, that just happened. I missed it. But that's it. at the end of the day, I still didn't feel like I missed out on a lot. Does that make sense? <laughs> well, you and I actually got were able to uh, get into Hall H for, for oh a while. My- Okay, so for those of you who, for those of you who who know what Hall H is, it's this like massive hall. It fits four thousand people, and you have to wait in line to get into that hall for like days. Literally at this point, days. Like people who are waiting for the Marvel and DC panels on Saturday were waiting in line Thursday. So like think about that. But Marvin and I somehow fluked our way into the hall, literally walked in and experienced what con goers felt like 15 years ago or something. It's it was funny because like I had no idea how long the line could get until the next day when I saw oh. how long the line was for like the Marvel panel, right? But we walked in during the Netflix panel. They made an announcement over the convention PA that the panel was happening right now, which signals that they're not full. Yes. So <laughs> yeah, they kept saying if you want to come see Will Smith at like Hall H and like the Netflix show. Yeah, it was like the Bright panel mm-hmm, the and Bright. the Death Note panel. <laughs> And we walked in right at the beginning of the Bright panel, which is the Will Smith kind of fantasy LAPD. Yeah, it's actually Netflix movie. It was very interesting because I think that film was trying to touch on a lot of really pertinent topics of like modern day, well, but I mean, in yeah. a very like token esque fantasy. Yeah, has always been like an allegory for racism. Racism. You know, like orcs are the dark savages. The elves are the pale and. You know, I'm I'm interested <laughs> to see how that film turns out, but I right because you have like the fantasy stand-ins for race, in addition to a city as diverse as L.A. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting. Yeah, for sure. yeah, yeah. Oh, I I'm I'm gonna watch it simply because well, we, we did get to watch Will Smith talk, which was pretty awesome. Yeah. And oh. he was giving his like white coaster so much shit. Yeah. Oh, Will Smith was not letting people like go. He was calling people out and it was funny. He was just making remarks about like just literally 
white people. Yeah. <laughs> like, and like, um, you know, calling people out for being complacent in, in what is like modern day, <laughs> you know, racism. So after that, I think I left to go to a panel featuring one of my favorite uh, comic book writers, Marjorie Liu, uh, who writes for Monsters. But then you stayed for the Nerdist panel and something magical happened. Oh, yes. Did it. <laughs> yeah. So Nerdist is great. Nerdist is like, uh, you know, definitely one of those websites that everyone, I think, at this point is very familiar with. And if people are listening to this, you should check it out. It is cool. And if you don't know what it is, it's Chris Hardwick's. Yeah. Like website. website yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, Chris is also like the godfather slash father figure of the con. Well, he does like all like the he does. He, he's like the guy you get for the big interviews. Yeah, he moderates right? a yeah. lot of really dope stuff. So Chris was there obviously moderating the Nerdist panel, which obviously makes sense. And there's a bunch of writers and producers from um, the website there. And essentially, what the first thing I noticed was, A, they're all white. Um, the second thing I all noticed <laughs> was, uh, you know, that uh, Chris is very in love with what they do because like the culture that that nerdist is trying to implement in the world is that of of one of acceptance like nerds accept other nerds right. and inclusion. that's beautiful it's inclusion yeah. it's like all the crazy stuff but you know because like for for those of us who grew up in geek culture you know we it's a very diverse like anyone can get into like these fantasy worlds or this this, these fictions right mm-hmm. whether you're a gamer geek uh anime geek a fantasy geek a sci-fi geek yeah you know i had like high school jocks who were really into dragon ball z with me you know <laughs> so it was interesting but yeah there's all people from all walks of life there and that's great but the panel itself was white and um there was like a 30 minute period time for the audience to ask questions because Chris is really into that. Like he really wants to hear from the audience and get feedback on how they're doing and what they're producing. So it's a longer period of time. And one of the questions that popped up was from this woke Asian man who walks (laughs) up with all this like swag and like stands there with the microphone and says to Chris Hardwick and looks him in the eye literally and says, so, uh, Chris, do you believe that the diversity shown on your panel is representative of that of society itself? And Damn. <laughs> what do you even say to that? No, obviously. And so, you know, you're, you're cornered and Chris is like scrambling. It's kind of a savage question. It's a too. savage yeah. question. Yeah, definitely a savage question, but one that's really important for him to have called out because as much as we want to say, yeah, inclusion, yeah, diversity, yeah, we love all nerds, but like all of your major writers and producers right there are white. Right. Have you ever seen this? There's this Tumblr called yet another all white male panel <laughs> and it basically just lists every single graphic of panels like tech panels like any panels all usually just all white dudes wow yeah and you know that's a good point because chris's response as much as he was cornered he did try to like you know squirm his way out but he was like well there's uh there's three women and uh one gay guy so (laughs) (laughs) like doesn't that cover my bases and um it didn't i mean it's 2017 it's not good enough, I guess. Um, but I think you, you, I want to say that next year, the Nerdist panel will probably be a little bit more diverse. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's not to say that the Nerdist team, there's like 40 or so people, I think now. I think sometimes you just need to 
like some sometimes people need to get called out in order to like see. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, especially in these communities where, you know, you everyone subscribes to or hopefully like most people subscribe to the tenets of diversity, inclusion, being open to everybody. And then in a way that kind of creates blinders because you feel like you're doing so much that you're not doing anything wrong. And then someone calls you out, it's like, oh, crap. Like you can always be doing more. And these days, especially when you're working with when you're. When you're in media, you know, when you're trying to um, create culture, there are things you need to think about more and more Not that you didn't have to before. When you create culture, when you avidly impact it, mm-hmm. right? And that's what Nerdist culture is. Like Nerdist, this was the first year. So this is not us ratting on Nerdist, <laughs> right? We're, we're, I'm a fan of Nerdist. Yeah. I watch a lot of their videos, um, and read some of their stuff on their website. But essentially the point is that we're, I think, trying to make <laughs> yeah. is that culturally speaking, they, they make an impact and they know they do, which is why they take their job so seriously. And this was the first time that they had a panel and it was in Hall H. So like there was a lot of, good for the community as a whole but also yeah definitely somebody called that out and it was great because that was literally the first thing i noticed Mm -hmm. as an audience member of color um but yeah so i think that panel in and of itself is a right step towards more inclusion but then there's still nuances within that that we're trying to address and i think you're right like yeah. definitely next year, there's going to be more people of diverse backgrounds. I mean, there. diversity was a huge topic in a lot of panels. And yes. uh, that's the other part of Comic-Con are the panels. You get all these great creators, executives, people who make culture happen together and they, you get them together and talk about stuff. And there was a lot of topics that had to do with diversity, not only with like ethnic representation, but like female representation, queer representation, queer female representation um it's a big topic and a lot of like a lot of these those panels were pretty packed because you have these great voices like roxanne gay and marjorie Liu and and the last day we went to the super asian american panel which was um i guess put on by race bending um and they've been at the they've been at the con for the last like how many number like a, a bunch of years from now it's a high number but i can't remember the specific number um but our friend will Choi was invited to the panel um after or well, in regards to success from um asian af um the first um all asian american comedy variety show at ucb um and that was that was a packed panel too that that panel like filled out people were waiting outside to get in um and i mean it just goes to show like People are hungry for not only for representation of media, but also to talk about it, to hear about it, to listen yeah, to about it. Yeah, you know, it. for me specifically, and maybe others can resonate with this, like, it's not just seeing diversity that's important. Like, yes, that's super important. Like, seeing our faces or similar faces is so great in terms of, like, you know, increasing your self-confidence. But for me specifically, there is so much to be said when 
you're talking about diversity, but also diversity in the adversities that you face, right? Because your stories are inherently different if you're talking about somebody who's black versus somebody who's white and um, somebody who's Indian versus somebody who's Korean. And so like seeing those characters and them facing similar kind of problems that I might have faced as a young child in America or, you know, even some things that might pop up in like a, a fantasy world. Hmm. It's just, it's so fun. And it, it injects the fun back into the world. Um, when there's like so much going on all the time that can strip that away, there's like this escape for us now too. And that's what personally feeds my hunger to see more diversity in media. Um, yeah. because it's really painting the picture more holistically. Yeah. Um, I'm really looking forward to what happens in pop culture in this coming year. It's a very important year for, for art culture and creators and activists and advocates. Um, and looking forward to how that affects Comic Con next year. Um, but thanks so much for chatting with us, um, about it. Um, uh, my co-host for this segment again was Monfrey Carr. Um, she is the executive director of collaboration Los Angeles and mm-hmm. was my, uh, my co-compatriot during Comic Con 2017. Coming up, we're going to play a couple of the interviews that we took at the Comic Con 2017 artist alley. Um, I pretty much just found Asian American faces and stuck a microphone in front of them. But uh, hopefully you enjoy. And after that, we're going to share a couple of interviews that we took with um, artists from the Dark Horse booth. Yeah, so stick around. (laughs) Uh, My name is Jeffrey Moy. I'm an illustrator. Uh, Well, I'm mostly known for my work on uh, DC Comics on a title called Legionnaires back in the late 90s. Uh, I was on that book for five years, so that's a pretty good run for any any comic book artist. And so that's what I'm most known for, but I've also done projects with um, with Star Trek and, and video games. I worked as a concept artist on on some uh, Star Wars projects, some X-Men games, and uh, Wolverine as well. Um, and I'm, my name is Ryan Odegawa, and I'm a comic book artist and storyboard artist. Uh, I've worked for Wildstorm, Marvel, um, Film Roman, and a whole bunch of different places. Really, it's always been like uh, my, a dream of mine to like uh, get into comics and be able to draw my own stuff and and be able to work next to like people I looked up to and stuff like that. So it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Okay, uh, I'm Philip Moy. I'm uh, my biggest claim to fame is working for DC Comics, uh, especially the Powerpuff Girls uh, comic book. Uh, when the show was coming out, it ran for five years and about seventy issues. I was the main cover artist, doing over sixty covers, and then I drew stories here and there. Um, my name is Leanne Wynn, and I used to work at Riot Games and Blizzard Entertainment, and now I'm kind of going off on my own and doing a lot of conventions and shows. You know, you when you're a kid, you just want to draw and do the coloring book thing, and just as you get older, you know, my parents weren't necessarily supportive of me doing art, but I graduated from UCI with a studio art degree, and then I joined Blizzard shortly after, and video game companies are really supportive of art, so I was really glad, you know, that took me out there. Mostly portraits um, and things that I'm passionate about. Like, I do fan art pieces, but I do some original character pieces, too. 
and really anything that resonates with me. Why do I come to Comic-Con? I, well, I come to Comic-Con to uh, display my stuff and uh, to uh, see, uh, get more people interested and um, exposed to my work. Um, if I were looking for work, then I would be out here trying to make contacts and whatnot with the various publishers and uh, just, just talking to people in general on uh, what's going on. Um, just like meeting so many people, meeting artists that you've looked up to and and just the whole I always get inspired after coming uh, you know meeting the fans and you know doing sketches for people um, selling prints uh, but yeah especially meeting fans and talking talking to them about you know not only comics but other things like Star Trek things that I have an interest in you know anime yeah a whole gamut meeting people and connecting with people through my art it's it's really awesome to hear their reactions and you know yeah it's really cool uh you just gotta keep drawing every day you know find something that you're interested in you know and just try to keep working on it every day and and uh and and nowadays we have the internet so so you should just be post constantly posting stuff and you know getting feedback and improving yourself that way i know well, I know growing up, and I don't know how how much it is still now for Asians, but I, I've had friends and stuff. Luckily, um, my family's been in America for a longer, but I know like for a lot of Asians, they they might have a different thing in mind for you. But you know, if you really love it, it's like just go for it. There's there's a lot of people that get into it, and they can make you know really good money off of it it's all about putting you know just being determined and and following your passion and you know you can make something out of it (laughs) um you know i mean yeah basically if you have a passion for art you know sometimes you know that'll just may remain as a hobby but if you're looking at it as a career look for things that you know might that you're interested in and that you can try to make money at uh, back when we were doing it, you know, comics, comics was kind of, you know, a viable uh, career. You know, now it's video games, uh, you know, commercial commercial business is always, you know, they always do pay a lot. But yeah, you know, even though, even though you're doing it kind of like almost like a labor of love, uh, you know, you still do have to pay the bills somehow. <laughs> so just keep that in mind. Just keep, keep, if you're really passionate about something, keep working on it. You know, it just you'll get better with practice. Like, a lot of people I meet are like, I could never do that. But really, it's not... I don't really believe in talent. I believe in hard work. And it's it's really just that. Practice, practice. If you want to do what whatever you want to do. Next up on this episode of Clubcast Presents... I stopped by the booth of Dark Horse Publishing to interview two illustrators, Ron Chan, who draws for the comic book adaptation of the popular video game Plants vs. Zombies, and Stan Sakai, the artist and writer behind the long-running series about the samurai rabbit Usagi Yojimbo. We're going to play them one after the other, so I hope you enjoy our conversations. All right, we're here with Ron Chan. At the Dark Horse booth. Hello. Um, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, what, what are you working on? Okay. Uh, my name is Ron Chan, and I am a cartoonist out of Portland, Oregon. 
Um, right now, I'm most well-known for my work on the Plants vs. Zombies comics through Dark Horse Comics. It's, it's pretty popular with the little ones. <laughs> I have a lot of very excited kid fans that come up to, to my table at conventions, getting books signed and stuff. Awesome. Yeah, you just came back from a signing, right? Yeah, yeah. Paul, the writer, and I, we just finished up a signing here. Uh, had a lot of people get signing cards and buy books and do little plants and zombie sketches for them. Awesome. Uh, how many times have you been to Comic-Con? This is my, I think, ninth San Diego Comic-Con. Wow. Um, although, first one in a long time. I started going when I was in art school uh, way back in the day, and I went like for maybe eight years in a row until like 2010, when <laughs> I kind of stopped coming for a long time until this year. So it's my... It's awesome. my first time in almost a decade. Uh, before when you came, would, did you come as an artist as well, or was it as like a attendee? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, when I came, you know, back in the day, it was like I was a young artist that's trying to get work. I hadn't really established myself yet, so I came to try to make connections and get my foot in the door, you know, portfolio reviews, try to get to know some editors. <laughs> and, uh, and now I'm coming back as somebody who, like, has, you know, a fairly, you know, reasonably established career. Yeah, so it's cool. It's different. That's awesome. Speaking of um, your early career, how did you get started um, drawing for a job? So uh, I went to SCAD, Savannah College of Art and Design, where they have uh, a major mm-hmm. in comics. They, they, they call it the sequential art department. And so I actually have a degree in comics, as weird as that sounds. Nice. Uh, I mean, it doesn't mean anything. It's just like, you know, nobody cares about your degree. But it, it, I learned some fundamental skills there that helped me out and gave me some direction coming out of high school like I had always drawn um, and originally I was going to become an architect because I was like oh you know architects they can just draw and they make money it's reasonable for Asian parents to yeah, accept right it, it seems like a like a pretty good career path um, but and I actually went to a tech high school where I actually got to do some some architectural drafting and I came to the conclusion that I liked the drafting but I did not care about buildings. <laughs> um, so when it came time to apply for college, uh, I was just like, screw it, I, I'm going to art school. And my parents, uh, they're kind of the opposite of like your kind of typical sort of like tiger mom situation. You know, like they've always been supportive of whatever I want to do. So when I said I want to go to art school, they're like, cool. That's awesome. Do it. Um, so I went to SCAD, Sight Unseen. I just, all I had was their catalog and I saw they had a comic book major. And I was like, that sounds cool. I want to make comics. I loved comics as a kid. <laughs> At the time, I actually wasn't reading comics. Really? I just, like, drew a lot. But, like, I, I was like, I draw vaguely comic booky. Let's just go for this. <laughs> Were and, you into, like, cartoons and stuff? or? Yeah, I was drawing just a lot of, just, uh, a lot of like, video game characters, really. Nice. Like, I think one of my biggest influences is my love of Capcom fighting games. Oh. So I would be, you know, I'd be at the arcade after school. <laughs> my, my high school was three blocks from the mall. Oh, no. So, like, every single day after school, head to the arcade. <laughs> play Tekken, play Street Fighter. Yeah, so I was drawing a lot of, like, Street Fighter characters and then also, like, you know, Marvel's Capcom, you know, stuff like that. And it's like, so I went and I was like, oh, let's see if I can just go learn awesome. how to do comics in school. And, uh... I kind of did. I mean, they, they taught me a lot of good fundamentals. And then, like, at some point, they brought in a bunch of editors. They have a thing they call Editor's Day, where they bring mm-hmm. in a bunch of editors to talk to the students and have Q&As. And I remember one year, uh, Bob Shrek came, and somebody asked him in the Q&A, like, if I were to move to a city to make more connections with comics, what city would be good? And Bob said, like, I think he said, like, New York, San Francisco, or Portland. 
Okay. And I was like, I'm from Portland. I don't have to go anywhere. Nice. And so, yeah, after school, I returned to Portland, started to get to know comic book people there because there's a huge community there. Um, and it's even bigger now. You know, back then, it was already big with Dark Horse and Oni and stuff. And uh, Top Shelf was there at the time, too. Mm-hmm. And now Top Shelf isn't there anymore, but Image just moved there. And Oni's, like, bigger than ever now. <laughs> so it's like, we have a huge, huge comic book community in Portland. And I just, like, kind of fell into some comic book crowds and started getting work. Awesome. So for the aspiring artist who, like, is looking for a place to, like, hone their skills or start, um, I know school is not for everybody, but would you recommend going to an art school or? It's a kind of a complicated question. I would say yes and no. Mm -hmm. I got a lot out of it, um, and I think there's a lot of skills you can pick up. If you're the kind of person that thrives in an academic environment and you are not going to go into debt, (laughs) I would recommend art school. Um, however, a lot of comic book artists, really successful comic book artists, are all self-taught. You don't need to go to art school to draw comics at all. And the uh, sort of the college situation we have now with student loans and all that mm. can get kind of out of control. So, and, you know, and it's kind of a, a, especially complicated with art schools because a lot of the art schools out there are private colleges that are really expensive. And to put yourself into student loan debt to go into a career that may never be able to pay it off. Yeah. It's not necessarily the best thing. For me, I was really lucky. My parents were some frugal-ass Chinese people that saved up my <laughs> whole life for me to go to college, me and my brother to go to college. And so we had college paid for uh, by our parents. And that's like a privilege that we got to have that was great. So I did get a lot at our school. But whether or not I would recommend somebody goes <laughs> to one gets a little more complex <laughs> you got know it, got it, yeah <laughs> um let's talk about your uh, your work so um obviously plants for zombies is a licensed property um how's it been like drawing for a like a video game it's great i mean i was a fan of the game before i got the job in fact like one that was one of the reasons i got the job <laughs> was uh the editor philip simone he knew i was a fan of the game um cool. And so I, I had already been doing projects with Dark Horse, you know, on and off. I've been doing little things for them here and there. So, like, they knew me at Dark Horse, and Philip had been wanting to find a project to work with me on, and he had been trying to negotiate this uh, PVZ deal with the game company. And so he had me in mind already, and then, like, it was actually our, uh, our friend Paul Guinan, he does a, a book called Boilerplate. He also mm-hmm. used to throw, like, a annual Halloween party for like just tons of like Portland comics people would show up and it was at one of these parties that Philip actually saw me there dressed as a pea shooter from Plants vs. Zombies that was my Halloween costume and he had already wanted to get this deal done and then he saw me dressed as the pea shooter who's like I definitely need to make this happen so when he made the deal you know when they start to deal with the game company he was like first thing he did was like he told me he's like called you and made sure you were down <laughs> and then Paul the writer also was a fan of the game too we, we both like played the hell out of the first game and so we were both super excited to get a job and I still love the universe I love drawing the characters it's super fun awesome um, let's talk about uh, so the comic book world in general um, starting to get more diverse starting to be more inclusive not only um seeing comics becoming more diverse but people creating comics becoming more diverse as well have, have you seen like a big surge lately or, or? Uh, yeah I mean 
I think there's a, especially with with like social media, like there's a lot more avenues for people of color to like get their name out there, get their face out there, and it's like to talk about the issues that like we need to make you know entertainment <laughs> a little less white, <laughs> you know. And I think it, it is starting to turn around. A lot of people are really you know kind of realizing that we need to do this, and companies are like starting to make some roads towards that. Awesome. Um, so I wanted to go back on, since we have you here, explaining, you know, getting started in comics, like the different roles in, in making a comic book, you know, there's, you know, the, the person who draws, the person who yeah. colors, like, what was your path to come, becoming the, the head artist? Of yeah, this? my first professional gig, I did everything. Pencils, inks, and colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a lot of work. <laughs> and, it, you know, I enjoy that level of creative control, but... It's also just like a lot of times just too much work for one person. So most of my career I've done just pencils and inks, you know, just the line art. And I've had somebody else do the colors. Um, and that's been most of my work for Dark Horse, too. My very first Dark Horse gig was uh, on Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. Nice. They needed a, they just had a fill-in issue that was just like self-contained story. And so they gave the main artist a break on that one and let me have an opportunity. And it was awesome. And since then, Dark Horse has been a good friend of mine and they've, kept me employed uh usually just as just as uh pencils and inks that's great and then uh same with plants for zombies i used to do pencils and inks and um we have uh another portland guy matthew rainwater does the colors and then the writer paul tobin is also portland guy it's all portland team <laughs> um well except for the letter the letter steve Ducho, he's not portland um and then I kind of like so I don't get to color my own work a lot except for I, I get to color my own covers okay so then I have total creative control on the covers where uh, I get to really like bring to life with some color and that's fun and uh, you know I'll post a lot of Twitter sketches that I get to do my own colors too that's fun and uh, eventually I, we have plans to start um, the same writer from Plants for Zombies and I we're supposed to work on something together we have kind of cooking oh. that you know it's, it's not like something that's been announced or anything but we have we have something cooking that eventually it'll be something where i'm doing like everything uh, art wise and it'll i think it'll be real cool when people see it that sounds awesome yeah looking forward to whatever comes out of that um i guess um, if people want to find out more about your your art find more of your your work where should they go yeah i have a website which is just my name ronchan.net don't go to com. that's another dude he's an artist too it's kind of confusing (laughs) but he doesn't work in comics Mm. he's like a corporate guy uh, yeah, you can go to ronchan.net. That's my website. Or just check me out on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. It's uh, Ron Dan Chan, which is just short for my name, Ronald Daniel Chan. Okay. Awesome. And uh, the comic book that uh, Ron draws for is, is Plants vs. Zombies. You can find it from Dark Horse. Check it out. Um, Ron, thanks for chatting with us. On the yeah, podcast. thanks for having me. Yeah. We're here at uh, San Diego Comic Con 2017. I'm here in the Dark Horse uh, press booth with Stan Sakai, creator Hi. of Usagi <laughs> Yojimbo and Comic Con legend, I guess. <laughs> How are you doing? Very good, Marvin. Thank you. Um, so, tell us a little bit about, uh, for people who don't know about your work. Uh, well, Usagi is a samurai rabbit, and his adventures takes place in the at the turn of the 17th century Japan, just after the Tokugawa shogunate has gotten established. Right now, I guess for him, it's about 1610 or something. 
and the country's in turmoil. Uh, the age of wars has just ended. The Tokugawa shogunate has just been established. There's a lot. Because the age of wars have ended, the samurai have become redundant. <laughs> so there's a lot of wandering uh, masterless samurai, of which Usagi is one. And he right now he's on a... Like a student warrior type of pilgrimage mm-hmm. where he goes around the country he has adventures meets interesting people anywhere from nobility to uh, seaweed farmers or you know so it's a I, I love to do research mm. and so this is a great way for me to uh, get back to my roots because you know I'm third generation Japanese American right? and you know for me it's just part of my heritage and I enjoy doing the research and studies for that awesome you've been drawing Usagi um, you created him in 1984 well he was first published in 1984 okay. he was created a couple of years before then but uh, <laughs> as far as pub- publishing goes I've been doing Usagi for about 33 years now going on 34 wow how have you seen the, the industry change around you during that this long period of time oh well back then I you know Black, black and white independent comic books were rare. Now it's pretty standard, but uh, so Usagi was one of the first to actually make a, a success mm-hmm. as a black and white independent. Um, Usagi came out the same year as the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out. Right. And they were also black and white and independent. And when they took off, um, so did Usagi. And <laughs> I think part of Usagi's longevity is because of the timing. Yeah. I remember as a kid, I was always I always saw Usagi alongside the mm-hmm. Ninja Turtles. Yeah. I understand they just uh, did a crossover in the yeah. cartoons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Usagi and the Turtles have, you no, know, like you said, there are very few black and white comics, so we supported each other. Mm-hmm. And it was at the San Diego Comic Con that uh, Pete Peter Laird, one of the, the uh, creators of Usagi, uh, just asked. Would you like an Usagi toy? <laughs> I said, okay. And that's the first collaboration where Usagi appeared on the TV series mm-hmm. and the toy line. And we just signed a deal with Nickelodeon, who now owns the Turtles, mm-hmm. to um, put Usagi in their uh, their animation, uh, the animated TV series, and their toy line again. And the first episode aired um, just today. Today's Sunday, the 23rd of Ju- July. Mm-hmm. And the first of three episodes aired, and it is phenomenal. I couldn't be happier. Uh, I wrote the first uh, episode, and the way it was broken down onto the screen is wonderful. It looks more like a movie than a TV (laughs) show. And a Japanese actor, uh, Yuki Matsuzaki, is the voice of Usagi, and he is perfect he is terrific <laughs> awesome he, uh, Yuki also appeared in things like uh, let's see uh, Last Samurai mm. um, Letters from Iwo Jima um, Pirates of the Caribbean okay. Man in the High Tower he has a really really nice resume awesome uh, now I want to go check it out I haven't watched cartoons <laughs> in a while but yeah definitely um, I remember as a kid um, like things like Ninja Turtles things like Usagi Jumbo were always one of the few things I saw in media that represented mm-hmm. Asian culture. Oh, yeah. um, was there a challenge, like, like telling this story? Like, I, I know you, you want to share mm-hmm. the culture, like, the history of Japan with right, the right, masses, right. but, like, was, was there a challenge in the beginning to, like, get that uh, out? Well, Usagi's goal is mainly for entertainment. Mm-hmm. And many of the stories are 
you know, action adventure or mm-hmm. romance or crime uh, mystery. But I like to add bits of culture to Usagi's um, stories. I have done coach, uh, stories about sword making, mm-hmm. uh, kite making, festivals, uh, seaweed farming, and you know, many aspects of uh, Japanese history and culture that just appeals to me. Either something I knew about or something that I found so quirky <laughs> that I, I wanted to do more research about. And, you know, as far as Usagi being accepted, you know, Shogun, the miniseries that come out uh, about a decade before then, mm. so people were aware. And you know how Shogun, uh, <laughs> when it came on TV, it was such a phenomenon. I mean, people would stay home, uh, make sure they're home at night just to watch it. They wouldn't go to the... Uh, the, the um, the markets or anything, streets were deserted, markets were empty, mm. uh, so people can see them to watch Shogun. So there was a definite interest and um, uh, a familiarity about the um, Japanese culture, and people mm. wanted more. And when Usagi came out, you know, it's both historical as well as entertaining. Like you said, it was uh, just good timing. Yeah, it for is. Everything. It's good timing for everything. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you know, you've been in this industry for. I guess almost 40 years now. Oh, yeah. Um, besides Asagi, I've done lettering for uh, Stan Lee's uh, Spider-Man newspaper strip, um, Drew the Wanderer. I've done artwork covers for most of the major publishers. And, yeah, I have been in this industry for quite a while now. What's um, Do you have any secrets or trade secrets to share about longe- <laughs> how, to be, how to have such longevity? No. Uh, <laughs> I mean, at first, I wanted to work for Marvel DC. Mm-hmm. But when I came up with Usagi, it was such a unique character. And one thing I really wanted to do was to retain all the rights to him. I own mm. Usagi completely. I created him, and I own him. And it's personal for me, and you know, I could not give that up. Um, nowadays, uh, you know, it's easy to come up with a character, but it's more difficult to retain your rights to it. Mm. If you sell it like to a big company corporation, then they, they want to own everything. Yeah. But I've always resisted that. Uh, in fact, a lot of deals have not gone through because of my insistence on <laughs> Usagi's mind. Um, you can use him, but I have to prove everything and, and ultimately I still own Usagi. That's awesome. Well, even the contracts with all my publishers have always been Whatever I send in, they publish. Uh, they have no it, no say as far as story or art goes. Mm. Wow, that's uh, you know it's it's really amazing that you've been able to have such great success as an as, as an independent yeah. artist. Um, I guess in terms of throughout the years, like in, in independent publishing, mm-hmm. what's or what are some trends that you you know you you've been seeing in oh trends? In yeah. Well. I've seen the black and white uh, <laughs> uh, boom and the collapse, mm-hmm. <laughs> the uh, the collapse of the uh, speculator market. I mm-hmm. mean, people at one time went into mar- uh, uh, want to uh, invest in comics because oh, they can make a lot of money. <laughs> uh, you know, if they collect all the number ones, uh, mm-hmm. the speculation market. Um, now it's uh, superheroes because of movies. Uh, mm-hmm. People are geared more towards the superheroes. Uh, I'm part of the the independent movement where we have a personal vision mm. that we want to share with everyone. Awesome. Um, speaking of the trends and the history, mm-hmm. um, this is your, you said it was your 38th Comic-Con? 
or well, my thirty. I think my thirty eighth San Diego Comic Con. I wow. started coming in when it was at the old El Cortez Hotel. The <laughs> attendance was, I think, oh maybe three thousand or six thousand at the most. Uh, we figured it can never get bigger than this. <laughs> then it went to the old convention center, and yeah. now it's at the new convention center. But then I also go to. Um, Foreign festivals, mm. uh, such as Angoulême, where the attendance is about 250, mm. and or Luca in Italy, where it's uh, you know much more than that. So yeah, yeah. that's awesome. It's it's how it's is great. The, how is the how is the international comic book like? Well, market, Usagi's you know? been translated into about 14 languages. Wow. Um, yeah, even Croatian, po- Polish. <laughs> uh, it does. Usagi is really popular in Poland. Wow. <laughs> I was surprised. Uh, French, um, you know, Spanish. It's it's really neat. Um, if uh, if a one of our listeners wants to get jump into Usagi, like they just discovered it, mm-hmm. realized that it's been around for so long. Where do you where, where would you suggest that they? Well, they Usagi is very very reader friendly. Mm. All you need to know to uh, get into story is that Usagi is a wandering uh, samurai mm. in an anthropomorphic 17th century Japan. <laughs> And uh, Dark Horse is great in that they've been reprinting Usagi in these saga volumes, these huge anthologies. Mm. Um, and, you know, that they're inexpensive and they get a lot of pages. It's like 600 pages, wow. more than 600 pages of story and art for about $25. Also, what's all, Usagi was on hiatus for a while. Now he's back, he'll be back again in New Adventures in September. Mm. Meanwhile, there's a crossover comic book with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that uh, that is coming out in uh, July uh, called Namazu, which is based upon the belief that there's a huge catfish that lives under Japan. Okay. And whenever the catfish moves, that's what causes the earthquakes. Oh. And many, many centuries ago, the, a god pinned the catfish with a huge rock. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't move. However... Centuries ago, a small piece of the rock had broken off, and it weakened the stone. It gets weaker over the centuries while the catfish gets bigger, mm-hmm. and now it's threatened to actually start swimming, and that would devastate <laughs> the Japanese island. So Usagi and the turtles have to repair the rock. I love that. I yeah, love just, again, based yeah. upon Japanese culture. Another thing that I found... You know, when I read about the catfish, Namazu is like, "Oh, that's really neat. I'd like to do a story about that someday." <laughs> yeah, I was um, always interested in learning about folk tales from yeah, other cultures because exactly. you know, there's so much, there's so many stories that could, could be told. Yeah. You know, people should. You know, um, I guess that that leads us to uh, my my last question, which is uh, a lot of our listeners, um, a lot of people that we 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 work with are aspiring creatives. Mm-hmm. They're they're people who. Uh, have creative tendencies, mm-hmm. um, talents, but aren't sure or are unsure where to start or if they can start or if they can even do it as a career? Well, uh, yeah, a lot of aspiring cartoonists ask me, you know, how do, what should I do? And first of all, if you're an artist, you draw. I mean, you draw everything. Don't copy comic books. Draw from life. Mm-hmm. Uh, take life, act, life drawing classes. It's, uh, you know, and show your work around. Show, show your uh, artwork to friends, to uh, teachers, to... Uh, get feedback. Learn how to take negative feedback, but learn from it. Um, uh, show t- friends, teachers, make your way up to other artists, editors, publishers. Uh, if you're a writer, the first thing a writer needs to do is to read. Be a good reader. Mm-hmm. You need to be a good reader to be a good 
writer mm. and read again and write uh, send your work out uh, then you know you, if you have the passion you know you'll keep at it there you have it words from the master himself Stan Sakai thank you so much for talking okay. with us thank and cooperation. you thank you very um, much and have a great rest of the con Next up, we check out the other side of Comic-Con, merch. But first, some more mini-interviews from Asian Americans at Artist Alley. My name is Amy Chu. I'm a comic book writer. I'm known for Red Sonia, Poison Ivy, Little Wonder Woman. I don't know, I've written a bunch of stuff. Ant-Man, Deadpool. <laughs> Uh, I think people like uh, my writing because I, I tend to go, I always try to go for a reveal or a twist on the plot, so I guess that's kind of my style. My name is Jim Chung, I'm an exclusive penciler for Marvel Comics. My artistic style, um, I guess it's, uh, uh, it's considered a, a somewhat realistic, detailed, um, I would hope, uh, action-packed kind of style. Hi, my name is Bernard Chang. I'm currently drawing Batman Beyond for DC Comics. I'm also doing variant covers for the new Superman, which is the Chinese Superman for DC. Uh, I would say that my artistic style is uh, awesome. Awesomeness. Uh, It's really tough talking about your own work, trying to be humble, but it's fucking awesome. My favorite part of this Comic-Con or Comic-Cons in general? You know, it's a fan interaction. You know, that's, uh, there's always something really cool about somebody coming up who's bought your book and is really, like, especially if it's their first comic book. That's like, wow, That's it's, it's kind of a privilege being that person. Or, like, oh, I love comics because of what you wrote. And it's like, oh, my God. Favorite part? Just seeing people, meeting people. Because, uh, you know, the day-to-day job just involves me just being at home working by myself. So just being a being here and get to see everybody it's uh, it's great i always love coming here well i just love the fact that um you know comics have become much more acceptable now and uh with uh you know transitioning into other media with movies and tv it's just been great seeing uh, everybody's interest growing it uh favorite part about being part of comic-con is i remember as a fan of comics um when i was younger i used to read comics when i grew up in taiwan we moved to America, used to read a lot of comics, helped me integrate into American culture and learn English and quote-unquote read books. Um, so coming here, you really see all the fans and readers and people that are just kind of, you know, nerds and geeks and uh, really feel like it's a part of a family. Uh, my favorite part of being an artist is that, man, I'm, I'm doing what I always wanted to do as a kid, a childhood dream. You know, aside from being a pro athlete, um, this is the next best thing. It doesn't pay as much as being in the NBA, but you know what? It's um, it's pretty damn cool. Oh well, don't give up. I mean, I you know I, I fell into this by accident, and I really wanted to do it, and it's a lot of work. I mean, it's very easy to get discouraged, um, but if you really want to do it, you do it. And um, you know, I did this quite late in my career, so it's it's almost, it's almost like you know, there's a lot of 101 reasons why I shouldn't be doing this. But if you love it, you, you do it. Um, as an Asian American, of course, you know, there's these uh, common truths or stereotypes that your parents want to push you into becoming a doctor, a lawyer, a businessman, um, businesswoman. Um, but, you know, you want to pursue your passion. Uh, you have to be good at it. And to be good at something, you need to spend a lot of time. You need to uh, sacrifice. You need to put in the practice and the hours. Um, but I would encourage everyone to seek their own path. 
you know, my argument when my mother was very, you know, I, a story, I started drawing comics professionally when I was 20. And um, that first year I saved up my earnings and I ended up buying her a house. Um, the next, you know, the next day she, or the next week or so after, you know, moving into the house, she still said, she said, you know, hey, when are you going to get your master's degree? I was like, Mom, you know, I just bought you a house, right? I'm doing pretty well. Um, I don't need a master's degree to be a comic book artist or to be an artist in general. Um, so there's certain things that you have to fight, right? And But the, the basic foundation behind this, they want you to be... Um, they want you to be okay. They don't want you to struggle. They don't want you to struggle like they did. You know, my parents' generation grew up during World War II. Uh, they faced a lot of adversities that we never even can fathom you know that they move from mainland China to Taiwan to avoid the communists to avoid war uh, there were bomb shelters I remember as a kid growing up in Taiwan there being bomb shelters that we had to practice going into because we were afraid the communists were going to invade so they just want us to be comfortable and safe but now that we live in a society that allows us these luxuries we should also further pursue passions and dreams that we have right and for the people that complain about not having Asian American representation in the in the medium in the, in the entertainment arts there needs to be also people that write that act that draw that sing and in order to do that you also have to do that at an exceptional level and the exceptional level comes with practice dedication and time Comic-Con's been a lot of fun. Uh, we've been able to check out panels, meet artists, and just hang out with friends. But there's one part of Comic-Con that we haven't talked about, shopping and the collectibles. In this segment, we talked to a couple vendors that we met throughout the floor, um, in addition to one of our friends who is an avid collector and a master of finding collectibles. I'm Eric Nakamura, and I'm with Giant Robot. Giant Robot is an L.A.-based specialty store located in the Sawtell area, as well as a media company and formerly a magazine. I think this is, you know, I try to count. I think this is year 23 or 24 in a row. So I'm not sure. I can't even remember, but I think it's 23 maybe is my guess. I asked Eric what he liked about Comic-Con and how it's changed over the years. Well, Comic-Con's... I think one good thing about Comic-Con is the fact that there's a big audience that I'll not see anywhere else. And I think they're from people from around the world. Uh, people are, you know, or if not, they're just from America, but they're traveling here. And they're, this is, like, really important to them. This is everything. They've saved up for a year to come to Comic-Con. So that's what makes it special. It's like they're, they're definitely, like, really eager and happy and excited and all those kind of things. And I'm, it is day three now so people are starting to get mellower like a little more tired i could see it in their faces but uh definitely there's a little, like super excitement right in the beginning i could just see it so oh man in the beginning when we first got here like 23 years ago you could just walk up and buy a ticket and walk in now you can't uh way more people the hall everything got bigger uh, it's just harder to just harder to like do everything in my opinion but with that comes uh, maybe more, you know, just more people and more excitement. This became, it's a premier event, right? Like, you can't, I don't think there's an event maybe not larger than this. I, I could be wrong, but this might be the largest 
possible like event you can be at in America anyway. So, yeah. I asked Eric about why he comes back to Comic-Con every year, as well as what's been the biggest seller this year. Uh, Giant Robot here at Comic-Con is a little different than what we normally have, but I think Comic-Con's changed a lot, right, from the beginning. So we went from uh, selling more independent, I would say, art, zines, like just kind of look a little more arty or weird things. And I think I have to really be cognizant of the people here and what they want. So it's simplified. You know, I sell a lot of Totoro. I sell a lot of T-shirts. Um, just things, pins, and I bring a little bit of original art. I just kind of bring things that I think are going to do well. I think when you're, if you if you try to be too creative, I think it backfires. That's my honest opinion. So I keep it simple. The biggest seller, I still think it's a little of even of everything. I mean, there are certain t-shirt designs that do well. Our Totoro merchandise does well. Pins are popular right now. But then at the same time, we sell original art, and sometimes that flies off first. Like certain artists are hot, so people run here for that. So you just kind of you just kind of got to play with what's you know what you think is going to work and uh, but for us no it's it's always a mix that's giant robots always this like mixture of everything kind of a brand I suppose so uh, we don't always just try to focus on one thing that's that's just not us giant robot is known in the community for featuring Asian and Asian American pop culture I asked Eric about how the reception has developed over the years at Comic Con um, I think in the beginning. It was an uphill battle. I mean, but we had our hardcore fans, but it's definitely become more normalized. You know, like, same thing with, like, Boba Tea or something. Like, how that, that used to be weird. Now it's just, like, regular, right? It's sort of like that. It's like everything's become kind of normalized, but we've just been doing it for so long, so I'm glad we kind of have a foothold in it. But at the same time, yeah, it just keeps growing. It changes too, right? But as what, things get normal, there's always new things that are interesting and edgy. It always keeps pushing boundaries, so uh, we just kind of keep on top of it and check it out, and that's kind of makes it fun. On the other end of the floor is the Awkward Animals booth. Hi, my name is Ted Fu, and um, I run the Awkward Animal booth here at Comic-Con. This is our sixth year at Comic-Con. Quite a while. Ted Fu, of course, is part of and founder of Wong Fu Productions, and the Awkward Animals plushies are part of their merchandising line. We have adorably cute awkward animals um basically it teaches kids and adults that it's okay to be awkward okay to be unique and uh, we had a giant sloth this year that was uh quite a hit like with eric i asked ted why he likes coming to comic-con every year it's it's a lot of fun uh this is the only con that we do and it's the biggest one and we're just like you gotta go do the biggest one and we're done i also asked him how he deals with the crowds the crowds, um, generally it gets pretty packed, but everyone's here to have a great time. So everyone's in really great spirits and in a really great mood. And we, just, we love talking to the fans. We love talking to uh, new customers um, that don't know anything about the brand. Um, they get really excited when they see our products. So that's a great feeling. In addition to sellers like Giant Robot and Awkward Animals, you can also find vendors selling anything from comic books to action figures to books and board games. Of course, the most coveted merchandise in the Comic-Con floor are the limited edition collectibles. These are things like Funko Pops and special foil comic books and other limited edition pieces that are coveted by collectors. I caught up with my friend Jeff Chen a couple of weeks after Comic-Con to talk about this side of the con. Uh, what's up? I'm Jeff. Um, I've been going to Comic-Con, I guess, this year would have been is my sixth year. Yeah, six years. Longtime listeners of the Collabcast and also followers of Collaboration might remember that Jeff Chen is the founding executive director of Collaboration Houston and is also known by his DJ name, DJ Kid Styles. I asked Jeff how he got started with collecting. For me, I guess uh, ever since I was a kid, I've always 
had some kind of hobby to like collecting stuff, whether, you know, it started out being, you know, baseball cards, comics, and then, you know, uh, later on, uh, other stuff, whatever. Um, I went to con maybe, I want to say it started maybe three years ago where, um, my friend was in this line for Funko. Um, and at that time I had no idea I've seen them, but I had no idea what they were. And then she was just like, Hey, do you want some of these? I'm like, what are these? And then she's like, Oh, you can only get these here at the con and stuff like that. And you know, they're pretty cool. So she sent me pictures and I was like, Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I'll get, I'll get this one and this one. And I think the very first one I ever got was this breaking bad, um, a blue crystal Heisenberg one that looked pretty dope. So I got that and oh, these are cool, you know? And then the same trip, uh, was the first time, uh, Conan O'Brien was there at convention. And then he actually happened to be giving out these Funko pops like after the show as well. And I was like, Oh, cool. You know? he's giving these out too. And I was like, Oh, well what, you know, let's, let's, let's look these up and stuff. So I kind of looked, researched it after the con, like what, you know, what are these, like, you know, what's going on with these. And I guess they were still fairly new at the time, you know, and I guess uh, what really blew them up was they get really good licenses. And I think they partner with game of Thrones and that's actually, I believe how they kind of blew up. And now it's like a, you know, a huge like thing that people collect now. And I guess that's kind of what sparked the collecting thing for me at uh, Comic-Con, I guess. Cause I started looking at, Oh, what else can you get only at Comic-Con and stuff like that? And I guess it's a huge, you know, like I, yeah, opened up a whole like Pandora box. They're like, wow, there's so much stuff here that you can only get here. And then uh, the collector in me was like, okay, I gotta, you know, try and plan out to see if I can get, you know, these or, you know, uh, but for me, typically, it's just like these Funko sometimes. And then um, I try to get comic book covers from some of my favorite artists uh, that are only released there. And those are like the main things I get there at con as far as uh, my collector aspect. Or, you know, sometimes maybe there'll be something else that's cool there that, you know, my friends will be like, oh, this is this is really, you know, dope. You should check this out. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and I'll see, like, how hard is it to get, first of all, you know, because there's certain lines that are just damn near impossible you know so it's kind of like um do you want to try for that and not get it or you know do you want to wake up at like you know 1am to get in line to go get it i'm like you know it depends on how much you value it for me um i'm not i don't think i would wake up you know like at 1am to go wait in line to get something try to get something at you know eight in the morning because a lot of times these are lines for a drawing they're not even guaranteed so it's like it's kind of crazy over at con so I asked Jeff to elaborate on how the experience as a collector has changed over the years as Comic-Con has become more and more popular. It's crazier. Every year it gets like, because more people, you know, go and more people find out about stuff and, you know, you have to wait earlier and earlier. Like, I believe like with like Funko, for example, I think back then you could just, you know, uh, what they would do is they would just open the line and close it like randomly. So you just be in the area and they'll be like lines open and you get in line and you buy this stuff. And then, uh, you know, then be like lines closed. And then like, that would be it. And they just ran, they'd randomly open it here and there. And it wouldn't be that bad. Really. You could just, you know, be around the booth and then, you know, just happen to be there when they open it and you can get them. And then it started getting really crazy. Like people start clogging up that area. So they're like, okay, now you gotta um, uh, 
line up for it in the morning or something like that to like be able to get it. And then it got so crazy with that that they're like, okay, now you got to line up just to draw to get it. Like you're not even guaranteed anymore because there were too many people waiting. And it's like, this is nuts. You know, it's, it's people, you know, started waiting at 6 a.m. one year and following year, they'd be waiting at 4 a.m. You know, the next year they're like in line by midnight. So it's like, it just gets crazier every year. And it's like, you know, sometimes too, for me, it got to a point where I was like, no, this is just too nuts. I'd rather enjoy my con than, you know, worry about this kind of stuff. I did try to ask Jeff if he would share any of his secrets. And like a true collector, he declined to answer. But needless to say, he's not the only person who takes going to ComCon very seriously. But that's not to say he doesn't have a lot of fun either. Oh, yeah, of course. It's well, I mean, I'm, I'm more I'm more concentrated on different aspects now. You know, like there's so many different aspects to con like you know as far as like uh buying collectibles you know uh the you know comic part where it's actually you know meeting artists that you like um and then movies and tv and panels and then uh meeting you know uh, like actors and actresses that you like there and stuff and then just doing experiences it's it's a lot to do there there's no shortage of things to do there so i just kind of concentrate on other things and like i really only spend maybe one day just trying for collectibles and that's it. Other than that, I enjoy my time. They're just like doing experiences and panels and just, yeah, you know, seeing what they got uh, out there for us. As for myself, collecting isn't a big part of my current Comic-Con experience, but who knows? Maybe someday they'll release something that I just will have to have and then we'll see how long I'm willing to wait in line to get it. And on that note, that brings our special Comic-Con episode to an end. Um, I hope you've enjoyed listening to our coverage of the 2017 San Diego Comic-Con. And if you like what you hear, um, please send us some feedback on podcast at collaboration.org and let us know if there's any other events or special topics you'd like us to cover. This episode was produced by me, Marvin Yue, and you can find the links and social media handles for all the artists and vendors that we talked to in the show notes to this episode. You can find those show notes and the other episodes of the Collabcast by going to www.collaboration.org. The Collabcast is a part of the Collaboration Movement, a nonprofit organization supporting Asian Americans in arts and entertainment. Again, learn more about our programs by going to the website www.collaboration.org. Finally, the Collabcast is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of podcasts featuring unique voices from the Asian American community. If you like this show, check out some of the other great programs of the collective, including Saturday School. Saturday School is a pop culture history podcast hosted by Ada Sang and Brian Hu, and they just started their third season featuring movies about Asians and music. Check out and subscribe to Saturday School along with the other great programs of the Potluck Collective by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks again for listening to this special episode of Cloudcast Presents. We'll see you next time.